Our guest preacher today is a man who needs very little introduction, a son of Lighty's Church who has ministered in the Middle East for many years and comes to us this morning from the faraway land of New Jersey. We are grateful to invite our good friend, Denny Barger, to come and deliver the message this morning. So come, Denny. Thank you for the honor. interesting you said thank you for the honor because in the Middle East when someone would say that we would say deluxe means just the opposite it's an honor to be here so thank you for that and uh, good morning to the rest of you you'll notice that uh, my wife Susan is not here and the last time I preached here there was a good reason she wasn't here somebody had to feed the pigs on our farm and I said at that time, when you got a woman that's willing to stay home and feed the pigs while you get to go out and have fun with your old friends, that's a keeper, right? Well, we thought that over afterwards, and uh, I'm happy to say we got rid of the pigs and we did keep the wife. So, And uh, the reason she's not here is that she's at a conference today. Um, what is it? It's a women's conference, and the theme is the names of God. And when I talked to her last night, she said, Today, may Jehovah Rapha go with you. And I said, Honey, I'm kind of losing my memory. What exactly does that mean? And she said, It means God is your healer. God is your healer. And if any of you are hurting today for whatever reason, remember Jehovah Rapha. God's healing, and he's here with us. It was mentioned uh, earlier, a couple minutes ago, that where two or three are gathered. He's here in our midst. Do you believe that? Okay, because we're going to have to believe that in order to go forward and worship him. And it is a wonderful thing to worship him with you, Um, especially this week. You know, um, as a pastor, I've been invited to do many a funeral, and I remember one in particular when I finished giving the, a comforting message to the family, I made my way to the men's room and I cried. I thought, Lord, why would you let such a person as me be with people in such an intimate time as the death of a loved one? Um, you know, we, we have a wonderful privilege as Christians to be with people in all those essential moments of life and to bless them and to bring comfort and sometimes to bring joy and sometimes just to sit back, zip a lip, and just enjoy life with them. You know, life can be tough, and the message this morning is going to reflect on that a little bit. Someone once said, life is not meant to be easy. It's meant to be lived. Sometimes they're happy. Other times they're rough. But with every up and down, we learn lessons that make us strong. You know, somebody else once said in school, you learn your lessons, then you take your test. In the church, you get tested, then you learn your lesson. You're being tested, people. Let's come out of this with the Lord's name on our lips and our behavior reflecting people that know him and know his grace and his mercy, and we love one another. That's, actually, that sums up the message. If you'd like to go home now, feel, feel, feel free. But let's pray. 
a little prayer that I learned from an old Scottish preacher. He said, Father, that which we know not, teach us. That which we have not, give us. And that which we are not, make us. And we ask this humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Galatians chapter 2. Um, while you do, I'm going to tell you a lighty story. Okay? Way back many, many years ago in 1978, I was a rather new Christian at that time. And I remember uh, there was a news, news flash that Bob Dylan had become a Christian. And I was all excited about that because I was always a Dylan fan. You know, I liked his music. And I, re I thought, boy, if Bob Dylan gets saved, then all these people that like Bob Dylan, they'll give their heart to Jesus too. Won't this be wonderful? And I said those words to Pastor Armin Weller. Some of you remember Armin Weller? Well, <laughs> you know, he looked at me and he said, that's dumb. <laughs> I, I loved his frankness with me. He was always very frank, but he was unimpressed. And this is what he actually said. He said, what will you do if Dylan falls away? I thought, that's a, interesting. But then he said something that really scared me. He said, and what will you do if I fall away? Oh, my pastor would fall away? Stop falling? I, no, this couldn't even be. He said, listen, son, you need to keep your eyes off of people and on Jesus, and that's where they should stay. Amen? I've learned a lot in this church. And Armin taught me that people stumble and people sin. In fact, some of you may have stumbled and sinned on your, your way here. You know, I, I've often done that. The wife and I will get in an argument. She says, turn left. I say, turn right. And the next thing you know, hallelujah, we're glad we're in church. Because we almost didn't make it. But we stumble and we sin. The Bible's very clear about that. And I want to read some verses to you. Proverbs 20, verse 9, asks the question, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, and I am clean from my sin? In Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, Solomon declares, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul said as much in a familiar passage, Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James chapter 3 verse 2 tells us we all stumble in many ways and if anyone does not stumble in what he says he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. John adds something that I don't know if you guys still do it but years ago uh, we ended that corporate prayer with words from 1 John. Remember that? Some of you older ones might remember. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we declare, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, Jesus, a liar, and his word is not in us. So, you know, usually you go to church to feel good, but I'm sorry, this just isn't one of those days, is it, you know? But you ought to feel good when you hear God speak the truth to you. And it ought to make us look inside ourselves as well as look to him in the hopes that he would change us and make us more like Jesus. In Galatians, we read about one of the pillars of the faith, Peter, and, and a situation in which he stumbled. And I want to 
you know, read this again to you, but just to put it in context, Paul's been preaching over in Antioch, and, and Gentiles are coming to Christ, and this is an exciting time, and I don't know if Peter heard about it or kind of walked into it, but he gets there, and he's like, wow, this is really cool, you know, God is doing a movement here, I want to be part of it, and so he fellowships with the people, he eats with them, uh, he pushes a lot of uh, rules and regulations out of the way just to be where God is working. And so he says this, and it happens in verse 11. We'll pick it up there. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I, that's Paul, withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now, Peter is what we in the Middle East would call uh, a Jewish background believer. In other words, he had been totally Jewish, and he gives his heart to Jesus. We also talk about Christian background believers and Muslim background believers in that part of the world. So he's, he's got a Jewish background, and here he is worshiping, fellowshipping with these Gentiles. And it was against the rules for Jews, even the Messianic Jews, those who had asked Jesus into their heart. It was against the rules to do what he was doing and what Paul was doing. Uh, they weren't even allowed to enter the home of a non-Jew, let alone eat with them. And it's still that way. You know, um, as Tim said, I, I come from New Jersey. And if you've ever been to Lakewood, New Jersey, it's probably the largest community of Orthodox Jews outside of Israel. If you do go there, make sure you pay attention because they drive pretty bad, okay? They, if they don't look you in the eye, then they got the right away, and that's just the way it is. But I was working up there um, doing a little social work, which I had done in the past, and I was hungry, so I went out to a, a local shop. I wanted to get some food to eat, and as I was going in the door, this big, rotund Orthodox Jew was coming out, had the curly Q hair and the black hat and the suit, and he sucked his stomach in so far, like this, so he wouldn't have to be touched by me. And I'm not saved 100%, you know what I mean? I just wanted to rub my hands all over him. <laughs> now go to the synagogue, you know? He couldn't. If I'd have done that, he'd have to go change his clothes and get washed and do all kind of procedures in order to worship God. Aren't you glad that nobody checked your hygiene at the door today? Now, in verse 12, we see that Peter feared these people, the circumcision party. And again, they're Judaizers. They've got a lot of rules. In fact, you know, one of the rules, their main rule, spoken of in Galatians, uh, throughout Galatians, is that the men should be circumcised before they can fully worship God and be part of the church. I think they live more like the Taliban than the son of man, don't you? I mean, they had a lot of rules that didn't make any sense when you look at the letter of Galatians and the gospel of grace. Now, we're going to put some restrictions in here, so don't get too upset or worried. But these people were influential, so much so that Peter feared them 
and he abandoned the gospel of grace. He caved in to their pressures. And then he became legalistic. He separated himself from these believers. I would just ask you to make this personal. When a mature believer falls into sin, it has ramifications for the entire church, inside and outside of the church. You see, sin is never private. We think it is. People actually talk about private sins. There's books written about private sins, but no sin is private. I've lived long enough to see that. Our sin affects everybody around us. I often liken it to... You know, when we were kids, we'd go to a local pond and we'd throw rocks in. And when you throw a rock into a pond, what does it do? It makes ripples, right? That's what it's like when you throw your sin out there. It makes ripples. It affects all the people around us. And when it comes to conflicts in church, generally, and this breaks my heart, it really does. You know who gets hurt the most? The new believers they don't understand. I, wait, I thought I joined this big family of love. We're supposed to love each other and kind of help each other through the difficulties. But now someone's thrown a big rock into the pond and there's these ripples. And it's often the young Christians that fall away. They don't know what to do with it. In fact, here's a guy I mentioned that uh, got caught up in it as well, uh, Barnabas. Even Barnabas, who was a pillar of faith, who was sent out as a missionary, we're going to go together with Paul, we're going to tell all the world about Jesus. Even he backed off from the people he had been ministering to, called to minister to, backed off. I, I just can't imagine being there that day. You think you got troubles? <laughs> My goodness, that would have been a horrible day. So Paul confronted the Judaizers, and I would say they're less than loving behavior. Look again at verse 14 with me. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm going to ask you to go home and read Galatians again if you want to understand that phrase, the truth of the gospel. Paul says he wasn't taught by any man. He spent time with the Lord himself. He saw the glory of God. It was God that knocked him off that high horse and into the dirt. And God who said, look, I'm here, and you're going to worship me. You're going to be my man. And he did. He became God's man. And he went out in the desert, and the Lord spoke to him. What was that truth of the gospel? Well, I'll give you a hint. It was grace. It was God's grace. It was God's mercy. I think it's in Romans 2, verse 4, where we're told it was the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When I came to Lighty's Church, nobody gave me a hard time about the way I look. One lady was, <laughs> I don't know who she was, and if you're here today, I'm sorry, but I thought you were crazy. I came in with long hair and rags on my my pants had holes in them and stuff, you know, which I noticed lately has become the fashion again. It's so weird. And, and we came in, Sue took me to this church, and I said, well, I'll go, but I'm going to show you what kind of people go to that church. And this lady, she, Armin Weller, came up to me afterwards, and he said, one of the ladies in the congregation asked me to ask you to come back again. And I said, why? She said, well, while you were preaching, you were talking about the disciples, and I couldn't get my eyes off that boy. I bet he would look... I bet the disciples look just like him. <laughs> now that's weird. I'm sorry. Okay. 
And then there was this gal named Betty Barn. Anybody remember Betty? What a blessed saint she was. She came up and hugged me. Now, remember, I was coming in from the streets, and no offense to anybody, but she didn't want my body for unsavory things, and she didn't want my money for anything. People only touch you out there if they want something from you. But in Lighty's Church, they touched you because they wanted to give you something. They wanted to give you love. And well, I remember several men in this congregation that I thought, boy, they got something I need. And I watched them for six months before I gave my heart to the Lord because I wanted to see if it was real, and it was. So here's Paul, and he's confronting them, and I probably should read the rest of the text. Uh, I'll start again, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There it is. That's the truth right there. We have believed in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And what does justified mean? It means you are welcome into the kingdom of God and that you can stand before God and you can pray to God and, and he doesn't strike you dead, you know. And, you know, just a simple way to remember what justified means, just as if I'd never sinned. Can you imagine you can stand before the creator of the universe, sinner that you are, and if you don't think you're a sinner, just ask your wife, fellas. Sometimes I think my wife is a fourth member of the Trinity, but that ver verge is on blasphemy, so I'll, I'll re we'll get that off the tape. Okay. Peter feared these people, and so we asked the question, well, why? Why did Peter stumble? And first of all, it was that, just that, fearing people more than he feared God. And this is evidenced by his trying to please people rather than please God. Peter feared losing prestige and popularity among the conservatives in Jerusalem. And I think most of you, I certainly do, we understand this. When you're in the world, they'll tell you you're some kind of knucklehead because you believe the things in this book written by a bunch of old men centuries ago. Anybody ever been told you're an idiot? You know, John's waving. <laughs> okay. They'll make you feel bad out in the world. One of the reasons I go to church is because they make me feel bad that I'm crazy. And then I walk in the room like this and I think, well, I'm not the only one. <laughs> but he, he feared them. Paul asked a question in Galatians 1.10. He said, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. When you're out there in the world and those hot topics come up, you listen to the Holy Spirit, but do not be afraid to speak the truth of God's word. Our nation is in a mess, okay? And I don't have to go into the details. You know it as well as I do. But part of the mess is you and me, and we don't speak up and tell people the truth that might, in fact, save their skin from going to hell. Amen? We need to love them enough. You know, we got all this woke business and and now we're called haters. People are actually publicly saying that in, in, in 
Washington and on television, you know, politicians calling us haters because we don't go along with sexual perversions that are kind of becoming the norm out here. What's that all about? I, was, I just want to tell you, you know, trying to please people that are in sin never works. They're not going to change if you go along and celebrate what they're doing. It just won't work. I don't know, wasn't it President Lincoln, he said, you can't please all the people all the time? Maybe he said something. I remember one, somebody said, you can't, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. I think that was attributed to Lincoln as well. But Peter knew. He knew deep down in his knower that what he was doing was wrong. If we go back to Acts chapter 10, we discover Peter had a special revelation from God, making it clear to him that God had chosen to pour out his grace upon the Gentiles. Peter knew that. Acts 10, 27. He actually said this to a large group of people. He said, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God... Don't you love those two words? But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. We always sin when we look down on people and refuse to love them. But loving the sinner doesn't mean we love the sin. And here's where whoever said Christianity is easy peasy was was wrong. I mean, it's not easy to be a Christian. And one of the things they taught us early on here at Lighty's Church was hate the sin and love the sinner. How in the world can you do that? That's got to be the biggest challenge ever. I remember going to see Armin one time. He said, what's the matter? I said, well, you keep talking about we should love people. I said, I don't love anybody, Armin. <laughs> he said, well, you've got a problem. You need to get that fixed. But isn't it the most challenging thing in the world to love people that don't agree with us? Well, there's Peter, and he forgot. He forgot that God loves everybody, even if they don't agree with us. Some of you know that when we came back from the mission field, Sue and I decided to uh, get our little farm going, and we got things growing and all that, and we started going to markets three times a week. I always thought every farmer out there was like uh, the Waltons or something, you know, like, real nice people that just said nice things and did nice things. Man, they were some of the foul, most foul-mouthed people I ever encountered. And when you're a pastor, as soon as people find that out, they change, you know? Oh, pardon my French, they'll say. I look them right in the eye and say, you dummy, that's not French, that's vulgarity. <laughs> I do. Well, they, they, they were just being all nasty and foul, and we were there, and we didn't tell them we were Christians or anything. We just befriended them because that's what the Lord says to do, go out in the highways and the byways and the farmer's markets. I'm sure there's a verse for that. And we went out there, and Susan said this one time to me. She said, we're not here at this market strictly for financial, earthly reasons, but for eternal reasons. Do you understand when you go to work tomorrow or wherever you're heading to, it's not about you. It's not about getting wealthy. God puts you in a special place where you can share his grace and his mercy and his love. You don't have to accept their sin, but you have to love them. Secondly, Peter stumbled through hypocrisy. I think we've already touched on that. 
Uh, but I would like you to know that all hypocrisy is rooted in fear and in insecurity. He was afraid of them, and so he acted hypocritically to even what he knew was directly from God. Uh, it's, fear is inconsistent with the gospel. Listen to these words from John Piper. When you feel insecure or frightened and are tempted to put up a front and avoid taking a stand for what you believe is right, the battle you are fighting is a battle to believe God. The gospel tells us that the death of Christ assures us of God's love, and so it gives us deep root and stability and security in our lives. But more than that, the sheer beauty of Christ's resolve to suffer for me instead of putting up a front to save his own skin shames me, shames me in my fear of man and my inclination to play the hypocrite in order to avoid suffering. Center your life on Jesus and his gospel, and the root of hypocrisy will be severed. John Piper. Thirdly, Peter's fear and hypocrisy were symptoms of his real struggle, which was legalism. Legalism is the belief that you, in order to be saved, you need Jesus and. Now, if you stray from this church and walk into another one, or if you turn the dial on your TV and start listening to some preacher or philosopher, whenever they say Jesus and, you're dealing with a cult. It'll be as plain as possible. How are we justified? By faith. You know, that thief on the cross ended up in, in heaven the very day he was killed, you know. I, I saw Alistair Begg talk about that one time, and he said, when the thief got into heaven, he said, where am I? They said, well, you're in heaven. How'd you get here? He said, I don't know. The guy on the center cross said I was allowed to be here, and I'm here. That was it. Jesus and is a dangerous formula. Be careful about that. So he's got this formula, Jesus and, and to do all this other stuff. Um, that's the way Islam was. When we lived among the Muslims, uh, they have no gospel of grace. There's a lot of rules and regulations. There's very little tolerance of anybody that didn't agree with them, uh, especially, you know, if they broke the rules. For example, in Saudi Arabia, women, if they didn't fully cover except for their eyes and go out without a male uh, walking with them, a protector, uh, they could be beat by a gang called the Moral Police. Can you imagine if we had Moral Police here in the United States? <laughs> My goodness, they'd clear out the shopping mall in five minutes. Sorry about that. That's probably uncalled for, but you get what you pay for. <laughs> you know, Muslims in, in the Middle East, if a woman commits adultery, she goes to prison for at least a year. Now, I don't think that's fair, okay? I think the guy should go for two if she went for one, but uh, they, they actually stone people to death. ISIS uh, stoned people to death for adultery. Uh, but legalism is not limited to Islam. Let's not walk away thinking that. I've seen it over and over again in churches. Back in the mid-70s when, uh, when I was getting saved, I had a good friend named Ray, and Ray and I had long hair, but Ray's hair went all the way down to his belt, you know. And he saw Sue and I change, and so he started going to church. Now, unfortunately, he didn't go to Lighty's. He ended up going to some Baptist church with this guy that he worked with. And this is nothing against the Baptists, but 
Ray goes there. He starts hearing the gospel. He says the sinner's prayer, and he says, I want to be a Christian. And one of the fellows took him aside and said, that's great, Ray. We're glad you said that prayer, but there's one condition before you can join the church. Ray said, what's that? He said, get a haircut. Really? Somebody want to show me a verse about that one? And sadly, Ray decided not to go to that church anymore or any other church for that matter because if that's what Christians require, uh, I'm not going to go along with it. Do you understand the importance of grace? And how do we get along with each other? That's hard. Especially when we're throwing arbitrary rules around. There's no place for that. Not Paul would say that. Not in the gospel of grace. We need to think about the unspoken rules that we have. Every family has them, you know. I suppose every church does too. I had an interesting situation for seven years. I was, I was called to be the pastor in Bahrain, and it was an international church. And I may have said this here before, because it, it, I say it a lot. We had people in that seven years that worshiped together from 70 different nations. And Lord only knows how many denominations were there. I mean, we had them all. And, and, and you would think, well, how did you get along with each other when you all had these different ideas, you had different polity, you know, how the church is to be led and all that. How did you get along? What we did as elders, we adopted a saying attributed to Augustine. I don't know if he actually said it, you know, or he, or he originally said it, but he did say this. In the essentials, unity. Now, what are the essentials? Well, if you took a quick look at the Apostles' Creed, you'd understand. Those are the essentials. If you don't believe what's being said in the Apostles' Creed, I'm sorry, you're probably not a Christian, okay? We believe certain things that have been handed down to us from the days of Jesus, and it's important. So in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. What does that look like? Well, some people like to play golf. Some people like to play pinball. You know, it's as simple as that. Some people look at the nice tie and shirt. That looks nice. But other people look like me. And I don't always look so nice, okay? There's one in every church. I had a beloved brother from Scotland in my church, and every once in a while he'd go, I, brother, preach it! <laughs> and I knew I was on the right track if good old Alistair said that. But there's things that don't matter. I mean, I don't drink, and it's a good reason, because I'm an alcoholic, and I stay as far away from alcohol as possible. But I could have a brother or sister, and a lot of my European friends in the church, they like to have a beer. The only time I had to be concerned about it is if they got drunk then that's sinning. But you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of gray area in the Bible, and we need to allow each other a little breathing room. Somebody got saved in a church I was serving when I um, came back from Cairo. I was down the shore, and this lady and her daughter gave their heart to Jesus one day at the invitation, and I was so excited. And then afterwards, as I'm saying goodbye to people, I noticed one fellow down there, and he's got them, and he's going like this, you know. An old fisherman told me, Pastor, we don't clean our fish till we get them in the boat. 
Okay. Have a little breathing room. So in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And here's the kicker. In all things, charity. And charity literally means love. Would you say that with me? In the essentials, unity. Can you say that? In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Well, that last bit, charity, is important. According to John, in 1 John chapter 4, he tells us love is the litmus test of Christianity. And again, I'll say it's not easy to be a Christian. John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So, my friends, I would encourage you to beware of fear, hypocrisy, and legalism seeping into your heart. Uh, In the adult Sunday school class this morning, someone said this should not be a time for us to be fearful or shameful, but it should also not be a time for us to be triumphant. Oh, we did it, you know. There's a balance in there, and it's found in God's grace and in his love. Now, I want to briefly consider confronting unchristlike behavior. I believe with all my heart that sin must be confronted. Uh, we wouldn't be in the mess we are today uh, in America if we did a little more confrontation, I suppose. So sin must be confronted. Paul says that in Galatians, uh, where is that? In chapter 5, verse 4, he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And leaders, if you are a leader of this church and you're here today, I will tell you, you must be bold. Not easy. You know, the Bible, you know, somebody read this morning, if a man aspires or desires to be an elder, I'd say you're out of your mind. Because you're going to have a job that is a job. You have this big flock to help fill, fill them with love and grace, but at the same time steer them in the ways of God. That is not easy. You know, and, and you need to be bold. Somebody once wrote, a faint heart never won a fair lady. You've got to be strong, fellas. However, we must be very careful not to make the situation any worse. If you're going to confront a brother or sister who you think is in sin, the first thing I would recommend to all of us is intercede before you interfere. You understand that? If you're not praying for them, honestly, you have no right to address their sin because you're a sinner too. We intercede for them. We pray for them. I always said as a pastor, if someone came to me with a complaint of sorts and and I knew they loved me, both ears were wide open. I wanted to hear what they had to say. But if I didn't think they loved me, if I thought they had an agenda, I'd shut them down quicker and spit. Once I was preaching and, and my assistant pastor came to me. He was a man older than me, wiser than me, I believe, and and he said, Pastor Denny, he said, you know, when you were preaching the other day, there were Catholic people in the church. It was their first time in the church. Someone had gotten saved in their family and brought them. I said, oh, that's wonderful. He goes, yeah, well, guess what? They're not coming back. I said, why not? He said, well, when you were preaching, you were putting down the Catholics in that message. 
He said, son, you don't have to put anybody else down in order to lift up what you've got. We had a special church. It was wonderful. But, and I was promoting the church, and I was comparing it to other churches, and that was wrong of me. I didn't need to do that. And he pointed it out. I accepted it, and I've never done it since. Is this making sense? Intercede before you interfere. People will receive your, your interference, if you will. Uh, pray for sinners. Also, never correct someone if you have an air of superiority. A holier-than-thou attitude is ugly, and you yourself could fall. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He said, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And we all know Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, right? And a haughty spirit before a fall. And thirdly, let's be mindful to speak a word of correction with the goal of restoration, Correction in the Bible is generally about restoration, restoring people. Proverbs 27.6 says, tell, it tells us this, wounds from a friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. And that's actually what happened to Peter and Paul. There's a wonderful end to this story. And some of you are thinking, I wish there was an end to this sermon because I'm getting hungry. But bear with me. I'm almost done. This is what happened. At the end... Peter saw Paul as a beloved brother, and he actually promoted Paul's teaching and all those letters that were being sent around. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, New King James Version. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. He saw Paul as a good guy, an ally, who was listening to God and speaking out. Now, what if we were Peter in the story? What if we were the ones that stumbled? What do we do then? Well, it is a sad fact, but most of us stumble, mess up, sin, call it what you want. And the first thing we want to do is brush it off, don't we? Oh, it's just a little sin. Oh, it's just a white lie. Well, I didn't take that much money, you know. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter what you did, but sin will take its toll. In fact, somebody once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you'll ever want to pay. Many a good man and woman were walking with the Lord when they let sin take over and it all fell apart. So be careful. How does it happen? First of all, we need to understand how sin works. Sin gets its power by persuading us to believe it and and think that we'd be happier if we just did it rather than resisted it. Um, and, and I'll tell you again, sin might make you feel good a little bit, but it's, it's temporary. And, you know, let's face facts. If, if sin wasn't tempting, would we even do it? You know, if the devil came along today and said, hey, I got nails here for everybody in the congregation, I just want you to poke your left eye out. He'd be like, get lost, chump. I got better things to do with my eyes, Okay. That didn't tempt me, but there's other things that might tempt me or you. And um, I have learned a long time ago, and it might have been here, 
that when temptation comes, understand sin, when it comes, it starts in the brain, and then James says it starts up in the head and it works its way to the hands. You keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it, before you know it, you're going to do it. You know, old buddy of mine said one time, you can't keep going into a barber shop without coming out with a haircut someday. So how do we deal with that? I would suggest you put a little movie camera in the back of your head, and when that temptation comes, oh, you're, you're going to hate this, just do it, okay? Do it in your head, okay? Let the projector play the movie. Oh, okay, Let, let's take a common one, unfortunately, adultery. Okay, this, this good-looking chick comes, and she got all the right words and right moves, and, I, and my movie's going now, okay? And, and we're going to sneak off to some hotel and blah, blah, blah. You know the dirty details, okay? But let's play that movie all the way through. My job is to be a pastor. If I get caught, several things are going to happen. First of all, my wife will leave me. That is, if she doesn't shoot me. She was raised in, in Telford, and she knows how to shoot, okay? So that stops me all the time. But anyway... I would lose my wife. My children would be estranged from me for at least a certain amount of time. I would lose my job because nobody wants a pastor that's messing with the women. And by the way, I was trained never touch the money, the women, or God's glory. That's a good pastor that follows that. It's just, you know. So I'd lose my income, I'd lose my wife, probably lose my family, certainly lose my job. And then I'd probably lose that woman anyway, that adulterous woman, because let's face it, I'm old, fat, and wrinkled. Now if I didn't have any money, what, I got nothing to offer. You're supposed to laugh at that point. I, <laughs> I, I put in my notes, congregation laughs. Well, a moment's pleasure is never, never worth long-term pain. Stop that movie before it goes too far. But watch it. Play it through the end. Secondly, understand that when we sin, God doesn't want to punish us. He wants to rescue us. Uh, listen to this story. This is a true story. In 1981, a radio station reported a story about a stolen car in California. Police were staging an intense search for the vehicle and the driver, even to the point of placing announcements on local radio stations to contact and speak with the thief. You see, on the front seat of the stolen car sat a box of crackers, and unknown to the thief, they had been laced with poison to kill rats at the car owner's home. The car owner had intended to use those as rat bait, right? So the police were more interested in catching the thief to save his life than to recover the car. Often when we run from God, we think we're running to escape his punishment, but we are what we're actually doing is eluding his rescue. If you've sinned, just get it out before the Lord. Third thing, understand this, your past doesn't disqualify you from the future. I mean, when I was, I was praying this morning and I said, Lord, why in the world would John call me to preach today? It's like that funeral I went to. Really? I was a stinking drug addict and a drug dealer. I have no right to stand up and teach you from God's word. But the fact is, God got a hold of that sinner, and he cleaned me up. Yeah, I know he's got a little more cleaning to do. He always will till I breathe my last breath here and see his awesome face in heaven. But he uses us. 
And that's amazing. Don't think your past disqualifies you from your future. It doesn't. Peter learned that valuable lesson. He learned to understand more deeply grace and mercy. Peter learned from the mistakes he had made. And God's, he knew this, God's plan wasn't over because if you continue to read about Peter, man, he went on to do some amazing things for the Lord. You can too. Peter kind of reminds me of a fellow named Roy Regals, and I will close with this story, I promise. In 1929, Roy Regals was an all-American center for the football team of the Golden Bears of UC Berkeley. That year, they played Georgia Tech in the Rose Bowl, and during that game, Roy became known as Wrong Way Roy. Toward the end of the first half, a Tech player fumbled the ball. Roy seized the opportunity, picked up the ball, and he headed for the goalpost 65 yards away. Only one problem, Roy was going the wrong way. Fortunately, one of Roy's teammates took off in pursuit of wrong way Roy and tackled him just before he crossed the goal line. You can imagine his embarrassment. At halftime, he cried like a baby, thinking he was finished with football forever. But the coach put him back in the game. Roy objected, Coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined the university. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd to save my life. But the coach reached out his hand and said, Roy, get up and go back on. The game is only half over. Well, Regals returned to the game, and they say he gave one of the most inspiring individual efforts in Rose Bowl history. Your past does not disqualify you from the future. There will be a tomorrow. I think Annie sang about that, didn't she? Let's all break in the song. The sun will come out. No. I'm sorry. But the sun will come out tomorrow. And there'll still be people out there outside this building that need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is going to send you in their midst for a reason, because he's filled you with his love and his, his gospel of grace, and he wants you to extend it to others. Job's not over, that's for sure. So I would end by saying, go and get back. Game's half over. It's not finished. Remember where we started this thing? I'll read those words to you again. Life isn't meant to be easy. It's meant to be lived. Sometimes they're happy, other times they're rough. But with every up and every down, we learn lessons that make us strong. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you for the wonderful good things you've done in our lives. You know, Lord, the other night, Sue and I were talking about Lydie's church and just thinking of all the amazing, wonderful miracles that have happened here over the years. Father, there's a legacy here that must not die. It must go on, Lord. And we just pray that you'll be the one to fill us all with a renewed sense of the gospel of grace, that we'd go out of here, that maybe we'd take some time to repent, Lord. We should do that every day anyway. But, Lord, that you'd fill us with your spirit and you'd fill us with faith and with courage and with hope. And, you know, Lord, we believe there's still time to change this society we live in. We still believe there's people that need to be saved before you come back. And, Lord, we understand, too, that there's those that need to give their life for the gospel before you return. Make us those people, Lord, full of courage and love. You're a good Lord. Bless, our, bless this church, please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.